Welcome to the Women's Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Sheridan House. We continue today in the series, God's Masterpiece, a study of women in the Bible. If you've missed any part of this series, you can find it and many others online at SheridanHouse.org. We hope you enjoy today's lesson. Well, it is um, good to be with you. And um, again, we are just seeing how incredibly timely our study is. Last week, we talked about when God seems silent, we know that he is not. And when we feel like things are unresolved, we can know that they are not. So today we're coming and we're going to be looking, do you love the title, God Works in the Impossible? What is seems impossible to you right now? Don't say it out loud, but just be thinking it in your mind because we'd be here for the next hour, right? But uh, anyway, there are always situations personally, like I prayed nationally, internationally, uh, just all over the place. But we know that God works in the impossible. I had a friend, um, have a friend who is Chinese. And uh, she, uh, on, when she had just gotten a job um, doing research at the University of Miami, medical research, and um, she told me, she said, I'm, I'm flying up to New York. I want to send, she lived down in Miami, and she said, I'm flying to New York to see my family, my dad. And uh, she said, I w- I'm going to give him my first paycheck. It's a tradition. Now, I don't know if they still do that, but in that day, she felt that she wanted to honor her dad because he had paid for her college education, her medical school bills, and all the things that he had contributed to her life. And so it was a tradition to take your first paycheck and hand it off to your father. Wow. Is that a neat... I love that. Hmm. Let me think about that a little bit. (laughs) Anyway... But what we're going to see is that same character in Esther, that respect for authority. So what we're going to do for um, part of this study is we're going to, again, look at what godly character we see in Esther. What godly character do we see in Esther? That has been one of the most informative parts of going through this book that we get to look into the lives of these people and say, wow, that's amazing, or whoa, I don't ever want to go there, or look what happens when this happens. And it has been such an interesting study to look into the lives of people that God has placed in his word so that we can say, hmm, I'm going to choose to have that trait in my life as I'm going through my issues. So one of the first things that we see, like my friend, is A on your outline, we see respect respect. Look with me. We are in the eighth chapter. We're going to be looking from one through verse 17, kind of back and forth a little bit. And um, right now with me, look at verse two. And it says, on that day. Now, remember what on that day is all about. Wow. Pretty traumatic day, wasn't it? This is when um, we find out that that uh, Haman is revealed as the bad guy, that Ahasuerus Um, at the bidding of Esther is going to honor Mordecai, which he forgot to to honor earlier or didn't think of it or whatever it was. And we just saw all the things that transpired on that day. So on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. Now let me just stop there for just a minute. Can you imagine 
Mr. Self-Absorbed Evil Guy Haman, can you imagine what his estate was as in second command of an entire Persian Empire? Can you imagine the acres and the buildings and the castles and the, you know, all those kinds of things? I don't know what it looked like in, in, the, in that day in Persia, but you can bet that this was some estate. And so King Ahasuerus gives it to Queen Esther, the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him what, was, what he was to her. And again, we've seen that kind of develop over the last weeks, haven't we? That at the very beginning, when she became queen, Mordecai had said, you know, don't, don't tell him about the Jewish people. And then clearly she began to reveal that she was Jewish herself and so forth. And now it looks like in the second verse, or the first verse, that Esther told him what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which had been taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. Now you see what's happening here. Mordecai is now being elevated into the position that Haman had with the king. In other words, he is second in command. He's like the prime minister or whatever title they used at that time. But he was now the second most powerful person in the Persian Empire, the largest empire at that time. So now Haman is gone and Mordecai is given that position, that high privilege of being second in command. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. She passes the authority of her property to her adopted dad. Now here she was, the queen of the most powerful nation in the world. She could have turned it over to anybody she chose. She could have kept the power herself because the king clearly gave it to her. But she says, I'm going to give this to Mordecai, my adopted father. I'm going to turn over the power of this huge estate, which we can't even wrap our minds around, to him to handle it. So number one, we see she still defers to her uncle. She's not too big <laughs> to give him the power over this massive estate. She has not forgiven, uh, forgotten her authority. Let me say that again because I almost said the wrong word, didn't I? Number two, that she had not forgotten her authority, her father figure, Mordecai. Number two, what do we learn? What can we learn from that? How can we apply this to our lives all these thousands of years ago? What, how, what is this, how does this affect you and me? Well, it's a huge lesson for us. Are we honoring our elders for their position in the same spirit as Esther? Now, whatever your family scenario is, Perhaps your father is already in heaven, or maybe you never had one, or whatever. But here's the interesting thing. We can transfer that authority to our Heavenly Father. Look with me to, or just listen, I should say, don't, you don't need to turn to it. Psalm 64, verses 4 and 5. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Exalt before him. Verse, uh, verse 5. Father of the fatherless, protector of widows in God, in his holy habitation. Then another wonderful psalm, Psalm 27, one of my favorites, verse 10. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but God will take me in. Don't you love it? 
And then Romans 8, and we studied this together a few years ago, one of the most dramatic passages in that entire chapter, verses 14 through 17. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, interesting word for today, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we call Abba, Father. Now, let me quickly say Abba is a term that was never used with God until Jesus, on the Sermon of the Mount, when he was uh, instructing about the Lord's Prayer, was the very first time he ever used that terminology with the Heavenly Father because it's, a ter- it's really a term of intimacy. It is a term of, of, um, of, of approachability. Now, there is an element of holiness in it, so it's almost as if we're saying, holy daddy, holy papa. It's a word of intimacy and endearment and reachability that Jesus introduced. And so Paul is saying in the eighth chapter, eighth chapter of Romans that we have not received a spirit of fear or slavery, but we can say, Abba, Father. We can say, Holy Daddy, Holy Papa. We, have, we now have that relationship with our Heavenly Father. Then verse 16 goes on to say, The Spirit of Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That as we are praying, we can have that sens- sensitivity of, Lord, I really sense that you're hearing this. And we, we, we talked about last week about how sometimes there's a silence, but we can still sense that he is listening to us, that we have a connection with our holy Abba, with our holy Daddy, our holy Papa. What a beautiful truth that when we become believers, we have a new family with God as our Father. Are we doing all we can to, to honor our earthly uh, parents, and then are we transferring that role to our perfect father in heaven? The same confidence that Esther felt for Mordecai, God wants us for us to feel that as well toward him. Also in Esther, we see, we've just seen, what do we see? Respect for authority. Um, we see respect, and then B on your outline, we see compassion. Compassion. I love this quote by Jacob Stam. It's in your book. It says, Lord, the only thing most of us know about sacrifice is how to spell the word. I'm not sure I even know how to spell it. How about you? But, but anyway, isn't that, a, isn't that a good statement? That sometimes, you know, sacrifice is sometimes the farthest thing from our mind. We're always wanting to know, how am I going to, you know, feel about this? And how is this going to affect me? And all that kind of thing. And sacrifice tends to be, as human beings, kind of the last thing we think about, isn't it? But number one, we're going to see it in, in her life. Number one, she felt pain for the suffering around her. Esther felt pain uh, for the suffering she, found, she saw around her. We see compassion in her heart. Look at verse 3. Then Esther spoke to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plans of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. We've already talked about how Haman had gone, uh, was gone, but the evil web that he had spun was still uh, operational. It still needed to be dealt with. And as the queen of Mordecai, as the secretary of state now, 
um, perhaps they could have avoided the eat, eat it personally, even though it was going to go out in about nine months. I'm sure that at, at this important time in their history with King Ahasuerus, they would have avoided being annihilated, hopefully. But the point is, Esther's heart is moved for her people. She is moved for her people. Number two, what can we learn? Sometimes we get so consumed with our own set of problems, our own agenda, that to weep for somebody else is not even possible. That we are so concerned, Lord, I have this health issue. Oh, I have this relationship issue. Oh, I'm, I'm concerned about this. I'm concerned about that. That to think about somebody else's problems can sometimes be the furthest thing from our minds. Not so with Esther. Here she was just being set up as the most powerful woman in the empire. She has given over the leadership to, or the king has given over the leadership to Mordecai, her adopted father. She's in a wonderful position. And so what is happening? She's feeling compassion for her people. Amazing. What can we learn? Well, let's see if we cannot have that same kind of compassion that uh, Esther had for her people. I'm thinking about a staff member that we had here at Sheridan House years ago. Her name was Carol. And she became very, very ill. She had spent, you know, months and months in the hospital. And she was really getting close to the end in her life. And we had had a ladies' lunch at Sheridan House to honor and kind of lift up the, the house moms because they're so busy over there with the children all the time and you know, for them to be able to be with other adult women would be really a wonderful thing. And so we had this luncheon. And I remember we were standing at the door getting ready and greeting the house moms as they came in and all of a sudden we hear the door open and here walks in Carol with a walker and barely able to walk and, she, and, and we all kind of jumped up and went over to her, trying to help her to her seat and all that kind of thing. And she said, stop. This is not about me. This is about the house moms. This is not about me. That was the last Sheridan House event she ever came to. She went on to be with the Lord. Wow. That's a hallelujah. But at that level of her life and what she was struggling with, this is not about me. This is about the house moms. Wow, compassion, compassion. So many of us become our own little islands, don't we? We've got so much going on in our lives, and um, you know that sometimes we don't even need know our neighbors or coworkers, and let alone weep for them. What an opportunity to make a difference in our culture is being made available to us right now. I have a friend who um, spent some time in the hospital recently. This is, we're not going to always be talking about sickness today, but this, she was having a, she was having a, a rugged time and, and had gone into the hospital. And um, one morning, she was on the bedpan to get my drift. And um, as she was there, um, a nurse came in to her room. And as she's sitting there, the nurse, was, we were chatting and going on and on and um, different things. And all of a sudden, the nurse stopped and said, what is it about you? You, you? 
here you're sick, you're in the hospital, and yet you're so cheerful, and, and, and you're so responsive to other people. What is it about you? So as she's sitting on the bedpan, she says, oh, let me tell you, and began telling her about the Lord and saying, that is how I can be cheerful. That is how I can be focused on other people or whatever. I don't know all the things that she said, but basically what she did is she began to share her faith with this nurse that had come in to her room. She got a text a while later. She was telling a friend about it. She got a text a while later. And the friend texted her back and said, boy, I'll tell you what, that gives a real new perspective on what Jesus said, go. And preach the gospel. <laughs> I love that. I love that. But anyway, that is the spirit that we see in Esther. We see that, that, that compassion and, and a thinking about the people around her. It was God-given. It was from the overflow of God in her. One of the fruits of the spirit um, from Galatians 5 is kindness and long-suffering. In the original language in Greek, it means fortitude or patience. If things are at the moment going well in our own lives, then it's an opportunity for us to come along next to somebody that's hurting. Or if things aren't going the way we want them to go in our lives, it is still an opportunity to come alongside somebody who is hurting for us to minister to them. Next, we see in Esther's life, number C on your outline, we see confidence. Confidence. Look at verse 5. Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if, if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, then I am um, pleading, uh, and, and, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Now, do you think she would have risked saying, if I found favor in your sight, if she didn't think she had found favor in his sight? Absolutely not. She's kind of using that to say, hey, I know I found favor in your sight, clearly. You just gave me Haman's land. And so she's saying with confidence that, you know, if I have found favor in your sight, knowing full well that I have, let me put before you my concerns. She is basically basing her plea on a relationship with him. Hey, I know that we have a relationship. I know that I have clearly found favor with you or you wouldn't have given me the land and so forth. So um, based on that relationship that I know, I am asking, I am pleading with you for something that is deeply on my heart. It's a beautiful confidence in Esther here, in, her, in herself, not, you know, a cockiness of, hey, you gave me the house, now here's my next request. It's not a cockiness. It is a confidence based on that she is no, doing, once again, the will of God what God has placed on her to do, which is to save her people from this edict. Number one, she knew whom she belonged to. There is a strength in knowing she belongs to God. There's a special charm and inner beauty that exudes from a woman that has confidence in herself, not in, oh, I'm all that, 
but based on the fact that she has a relationship with Jesus Christ. Hence, my friend on the bedpan. Based on her relationship with God, it gave her confidence and a peacefulness and a, uh, a beauty that draws people to her. We need to have the same. What can we learn? Number two, we get strength to do the right thing, whatever God calls us to do based on the relation, our relationship with Jesus Christ, based on our relationship with the Lord. And we feel called to do maybe something very difficult. Maybe there's a confrontation that needs to be, uh, be had with a family member or extended family or whatever, or you know, with all the division in the land right now between political parties and all those kinds of things. Is there something that we need to do? We need to go in the strength of what God calls us to do. He gives us strength. That's what he did with Esther, gave her strength. And then we're going to see, next on your outline, God does the impossible. An example of amazing turnaround. Is God in the business of the impossible? Absolutely. Absolutely. A on your outline, are there any circumstances too dark for God? Let me ask that again. Are there any circumstances that are too dark for God? No. There is no person whose heart is so hard that God can't soften it. There is no personal state so difficult that God cannot change it. We see that tr truth uh, illustrated over and over in our stories. Um, one of the great lessons here in this book of Esther is that there's no situation, no timing that is off for God. He can do and accomplish everything that he wants to do. Number one, what were the circumstances, dark circumstances then? We could, uh, what could be darker than an irrevocable death sentence for an entire race of people? In nine months, there was a year between that edict and then what we're going to witness later on this morning, that there was nine months, already several months had elapsed, and within nine months, that edict was going to be uh, going to be carried out. Remember, this situation was so impossible even for the king. Remember the king when he found out about what he had done? He went out into the garden and he's like, oh my goodness, what have I done? <laughs> oh my. I, I, I'm, I'm listening to having dinner in a wonderful time <laughs> with Haman and he g gives the idea of, hey, why don't we just um, get rid of all those Jews? Oh yeah, that, okay. And so he go, when he finds out about it, he goes out into the, the uh, garden and says, what was I thinking? What have I done? Because once my signet ring has sealed the edict, there is no undoing. So what do I do now? Was his feeling. So we see him even dealing with circumstances that seem absolutely impossible, but we're going to see God do what seems from a human perspective impossible. Number two, what are the impossible situations for us? I know that each of us have circumstances in our own lives that seem impossible apart from the intervention of God. And you know what? That's what is so encouraging about this story, that if he will intervene on behalf of Esther and her people, he will intervene on our behalf as well. You know what? 
God doesn't love Esther or the Jewish people back in the Persian Empire any more than he loves you and me. He doesn't love that group of people any more than he loves Mary and Denise and Cindy and Rosemary. He loves us all the same. He has unconditional love for all of us. So if he is going to step in and do a mighty work for them, he, has, he can still and will and desires to do a mighty work in our lives pers- on a personal way and in a big way in whatever the circumstances is. Wow. Not only do we have our own circumstances, but we have a global pandemic uh, right now. We have election <laughs> unresolved for goodness sake. And we have all these things, you know, we, we have this feeling of because of the pandemic and so forth and all the things going on, you know, will life ever be back to normal? <laughs> will we ever be able to travel again? I have a friend who uh, last spring in April, she, through her work, she and her husband were supposed to travel to Italy and to Spain. Well, guess what? That didn't happen. Will it ever happen again? Will we ever be able to go on a cruise, for goodness sake? Or will our children ever be able to go back into a schoolroom without a mask for seven hours? Wow. And we have all these concerns, impossible situations, unrest in our streets. But here's the truth. God is not held hostage by disease or anything else that looks fearful to us. He is not held hostage. We've talked about this so often that nature talk, uh, teaches that. We've talked about, you know, probably every week how the sun goes up and the sun comes down. In other parts of the country, we have seasons. Fall happens. Leaves fall from the tree. And then suddenly it's, it's winter and ooh, cold, and they get to wear coats up there and sweaters. Wow, wouldn't that be nice? And then, then spring happens. And guess what? Little buds come out on those trees. That, that just is astonishing to me. When I think about it, you look at a dead tree and you think, oh, well, this one, is, this one is not coming back. Well, guess what? Little tiny buds, which turn into little flowers, and then suddenly, whoop, blossoming. And then the heat of summer happens, and the sweaters and the jackets go away, and on and on it goes. God is not hindered. We see that in nature, and this story teaches that, doesn't it? God is not hindered. B, what are the impossible people in your life? Can God do the impossible with hard-hearted people in your life? Is there somebody in your life that is your cross to bear? Is there somebody that you think about, okay, Thanksgiving is around the corner, and oh my goodness, if that one relative comes in again, oh boy, I am in such deep water. How, Lord, please give me patience, or, or whatever it is. Is there someone that causes you to be on your knees constantly? You cannot imagine them ever coming around or having a change of attitude. Is there somebody like that in your life? Yeah, I think so. Don't you imagine that Esther felt that? As she had been through what she had gone through with Haman, that she thought, okay, there are a lot of people that can come around, but that guy? Whoa. And, and so you knew, know that she felt that way, or the king, for, for goodness sake. When she had to wait in the inner court to know, imagine, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, as she stood in that court, wondering, okay, when that door opens and he sees me standing there, you know, is he going, am I going to lose my life? 
Or is he going to hear me out? There was a moment in Esther's life she had no clue what that relationship was going to be with her king. Wow. Number one, who were the impossible people here? Well, for Esther, we've already talked about um, this um, egotistical king, so self-absorbed and really so thoughtless. Oh, hey, hey, man, great idea. Let's just, you know, let's just send our people out and just kill off the Jews. That, oh, yeah, good idea. Heartless? Oh my goodness, what was he thinking? Self-absorbed, or wicked Haman, heartless and wicked. Yet both were putty in God's hand. Let me say that again. Both were putty in God's hands. God is not intimidated by godless people. God is not intimidated by godless people. Wow, right, Ellie? Right. Right, okay. Number two, who are the impossible people in your life? He knows your situation. He knows your person or persons. Your person is not any harder for God than Ahasuerus. He's not any harder. She's not any harder. He is able to penetrate the darkest situation and soften the hardest heart. There is no personal condition that he cannot change. There is no election that he cannot direct. There is no national situation that cannot be resolved. Wow, by God. Is there something in your heart that you are struggling with? Maybe it's something in, on yourself. Maybe it's not even another person or people. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's an attitude you can't shake loose of or, or a way of responding or a, hap, a, a habit or whatever. Back to our sco- story before the, the second edict happens, when the king sealed the order for the Jewish, Jewish extermination, there was a state of total gloom. Remember the time of sackcloth and ashes for the Jewish people. When they heard about it, it was a time of, oh my, what is going to happen to us? This, this, this spirit of gloom and uh, sackcloth and ashes that we've talked about in the past, a feeling of total helplessness. Then God. Then God. Then God stepped in. He changed a personal state so difficult and hopeless in the ver- verse 16 that, verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. That their attitude turned from sackcloth and ashes and gloom and what is going to happen to us and, and despair and desperateness to suddenly the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Why? Because God stepped in. And we need to embrace that in our lives. God can and does the impossible. He is able to penetrate the darkest situation, soften the darkest heart, and that's one of the great stories about the book of Esther. Applying that to our lives in those situations that seem absolutely impossible. I just need to do my part. I just need to do my part. See, what is my part? Uh, this passage is amazing. Lamentations 3, 22 through 26. It was in your homework. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord, verse 24, is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope, not in the situation getting better, not that the person, no. I will hope in him. 
I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that we should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Waiting quietly for the salvation of the Lord. My, my part, get my focus in the right place. Get my focus in the right way. Faith, uh, right place on his, as it says in verse 23, on his great love and faithfulness. When you're struggling and the situation seems so impossible, go back, think, what were some of the things that God did miraculously? I, I want to think about the faithful things that God has done. And I, I know I talk about this almost every week, but get a grateful journal. Begin your day, especially on challenging days, and say, okay, God, I, yesterday you did this. Yesterday you did that. Yesterday I had that phone call. I got that very encouraging text from a friend of mine or whatever and just add them up so that when you're going through that difficult time, what are we to do? Hope in the Lord. Look and see. Remember his faithfulness in your life. Get the focus in the right place on his great love and faithfulness. Hope in him, not in our situation getting better, but hope in him who is able to do the impossible. And then it says in verse 25, seek God, not our own solutions. Oh, do we love to do that as women, don't we? And, and w human beings, but maybe particularly as women. You know, if I just did this and said that, and then I could do this and this and this, and we love to manipulate situations, don't we? We come up with great plans. Wow. I, I mean, I think this is definitely the I think this is definitely the answer. And rather than that, it says, seek God. Seek God. Wait on him and do it quietly, 24 and 26 says. Remember, we don't have, we don't have his perspective or his time frame. We talked about that last week uh, to such a degree that we don't, we don't have the whole picture. We don't see the beginning from the end. We just see what's happening right now in our lives, the fearful circumstances. But God's got the whole picture. God's got the whole picture. So we need to wait on him and do it quietly. Remember um, that, um, that, that we can trust him to be a part of doing the impossible. What do I do? Well, the verse tells us hope, wait, seek, wait quietly. I love that one. That's a hard one to do, isn't it? Wait quietly. That says to me prayerfully and not whining and complaining. Oh, I'm so glad I got you on the phone. I just have to tell you, I am just, I cannot even tell you how discouraged I am. Wow. And instead of complaining and whining and, you know, all those things, God, I'm waiting on you quietly, patiently. Um, I don't have your perspective. I don't know the beginning from the end. I don't know the lessons you're trying to teach me or the person involved or whatever, but I'm going to wait on you and I'm going to wait quietly, prayerfully, without whining and complaining. Wow. Wonderful lessons we've learned from Esther in this passage. Now, what can we learn from Mordecai's elevation? What can we learn from that? What are some lessons that God wants us to see from that part of of this story. Look at with me to verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Now he didn't say, hey, um, king, could you go into your closet and you know anything purple will be good? I'd love to wear that. 
you know, any kind of a hat or a crown or whatever you got going to golden. Hmm. It wasn't something he requested. And he didn't say, uh, so, hey, so that I can go into the town of Susa and everybody's going to say, oh, my. You know, we thought he was great when he got to be carried, you know, pulled around the city on that horse. But look at this now. He's wearing purple from the king's wardrobe. No, he was given those things. A, Mordecai never responded to men. He never responded to men. He lived out God's plan for his life, for Esther's life, and for the children of Israel. He lived it out, waiting for God to uh, bring about the plan that he had operation, go operational. There's a great quote from Charles Spurgeon. If I fawn after man's praise, then I will have to fear man's criticism. Isn't that good? If I'm going after man, man, oh, you know, oh, I want them to, you know, pl applaud me and, you know, oh, I hope they see that purple thing that I get to wear in the crown and wow. And I, if I'm seeking applause from man, men, from people, then I will have to respond and fear their criticisms. Isn't that a good, good thought? Absolutely. When he was ignored for doing the right thing in chapter two or three, he never complained. He didn't say, by the way, hello, I was the one that saved your life, king. Come on. He, we don't see him doing that. And when he received commendation in chapter 6, we never see a bragging, vindictive response. When he got taken around the city, he didn't say, hey, Haman, fun having you pull the horse around. We don't see any of that. We also talked about how, what did he do? He returned right back to his position outside the king's gate. We don't have him, we don't see him elevating himself and saying, you know, I'd like to really go on the inner court now, now that I'm somebody special and important. We don't see that. We don't see him going after any um, uh, uh, um, response from human beings. No attempt to work his way up or get what he deserved. What, when we live that way, not striving for man's honor or personally promoting ourselves, guess what? God is able to elevate us. If we take that responsibility and, and try to get um, elevated by other people, then we are hindering, perhaps, God being able to say, let me elevate you. Guess what? Wouldn't you rather be elevated by God than other people? Yeah, me too. So I'm going to be very careful about that from this moment on. Anyway, um, God did a mighty thing for Mordecai because of his spirit of humbleness, his spirit of humbleness. The morning that I was studying and putting this study together, I opened up my um, little devotional Bible, and in it, I, I looked, and at the entire reading for that day was on humility. Um, and, and I was going to bring it today, and I forgot it, sorry. But anyway, um, everything that day was on humility. And that is what we've seen in Mordecai. Humility, humility, humility. He was not trying to prop himself up. He was not trying to present himself to authority. He, he was humble in every way. And so God was able to do a mighty, mighty work through Mordecai. B, what does God do this for this man? Verse 2, 
The king took off the signet ring, we already read this, which he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Number one, he was given the signet ring, which made him the most powerful man in Persia under the king. He would have the authority to seal edicts and decrees from the king. Number two, he was given a position of steward, became the steward of the largest estate in the land next to the king's. Number three, he was given royal garments, as we read in verse 15. Um, and he went out with robes of blue and, and, and white and golden crown and robe of fine linen and purple, as we just read. And the city of Susa shouted because they were so thrilled that now this godly man was being elevated to this degree. Colors are so significant in scripture. Remember the tabernacle. There was blue in the tabernacle, and that was to represent the heavenly places. Um, uh, white was to uh, illustrate righteousness, purple royalty, gold, a crown of gold, divine glory and, glory and royalty, fine linen, the clothing and scripture for saints. Guess what? Someday we get to wear white linen, white robes. Wow, amazing. Incredible. Anyway, what can we learn? See on your outline? God saw the motivation of this man's heart, humility, and elevated him. God sees our hearts and will honor our purity. If not here on earth, then in, in eternity. We just need to make sure that we're constantly looking into our hearts and, and being open to um, hear the Lord if there's an area that needs to be addressed in our lives. Mordecai is our assurance that God is aware of what's going on in our hearts. There's also so much symbolism in this chapter. Uh, look here, we see the picture of grace. We see the picture of grace. First, we see the irrevocable law, number one. What is that all about in the story? Well, Haman had had the king sign into law on that 13th day of the 12th month that every Jewish man, woman, and child were to be destroyed. For us, same in our lives. Romans 3, 23 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And furthermore, Romans 6, 23 goes on to say, for the wages of sin is death. There is an irrevocable law in our lives. We've all sinned, and so we have the penalty of death upon us. But B, guess what? We have seen the second edict of love. Number one, in the story. What happens in the story? What's the second edict of love? Look at verse 7 and 8. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for the edict written in the name of the king and sealed with his king's, with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Because of his love for Esther, he comes up with a second edict. He doesn't nullify or contradict the first because he cannot. He has already sealed it. But what he can do was he can um, come up with another plan based on his love for Esther. Look at his second plan. Verses 9 through 14. And the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Silvan. 
and on the 23rd day. And the edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia. Province, 127 provinces to each province in its own script, to each person in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of a king of Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters to the mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city, and here it is, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed forces of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And on the day throughout the province of the king of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued in decree in every single province, being publicly displayed to the peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. Wow. In other words, um, I cannot, very sadly, King Hasuerus is saying, I cannot reverse the first edict. However, I can give you a second edict. And that edict I will provide and I will work it out for you. Jesus is the second edict in our lives. He is the second edict. God, in his love for us, like King Ahasuerus in his love for Esther, God, in his love for us, cannot revoke the first edict, which is that we are sinners and we're bound to death. But what he can do is he presents a second edict, that Jesus would die for our sins, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, while we were under the first edict, while we were destined for death because of our sinfulness, Christ died for us. Wow. See, there must be a response. There must be a response. Number one, in the story, the Jews could not have been saved if they had ignored the decree. They could have said, well, you know, I'm not really excited about using a sword. <laughs> I don't know if I want to defend myself. I mean, wow, what would have happened? These people that were coming in from the first edict would have killed them. They needed to step up and act. They had to act on the second edict. Then they were to be saved. How about us, number two? Same is true for us. We have re we receive deliverance if in simple faith we receive and act upon that message of grace. Romans 10, 9, through, uh, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Jews could accept or reject their deliverance as they please. Whether they lived or died was based on, in faith, acting on Edict 2. We also are delivered based on acting in faith on the second edict, God's plan of salvation. But we need to receive it by, by, uh, by faith. D, there is a spirit of urgency. Number one, in the story, 
So the couriers mounted on their swift horses were used in the king's uh, service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Notice the words, hurriedly, urged on. If you have a NIV version, it says raced out, spurred on. They, they, want, they wanted to get that, that message out. There was a spirit of urgency. They had only nine months left before the first edict was to go in effect. So what if they had not hurriedly gone out, well, let's take time, you know, hey, let's stop at Starbucks and, you know, pick up a pumpkin spice latte on the way out. They'd taken their time. Wow, what would have happened? If they had been negligent, some would have not received that message of salvation, of deliverance. If they had just taken their time rather than urgent, hurriedly, raced out, spurred on. Wow, a feeling of urgency. We need to let those people know about Edict 2 and how to get past Edict 1. Number two, how about for us? We don't know the time frame we have left, do we? We don't know if we have 50 years, 20 years, three days. We have no idea the days that have been numbered on our behalf. We don't know. The Jews had only nine months. We don't know. We also cannot delay. Also, we are the couriers of the good news. We need to be racing out, spurred by the king's command. We need to make sure that everyone in our spheres of influence know about Edict 2, the good news that God has provided for us. We need to go and, and, and uh, make um, disciples of other people. Many provinces to cover <laughs> to get the word out um, that um, we're being saved from the first edict of death. Many people groups that are still ignorant about God's grace. And we, we can do our part here in the United States of America to pray for our missionaries abroad and, and, and pray that the people groups that have still not heard about Edict 1 and Edict 2 will know and know that the way to be saved from Edict 1 is a faith in Jesus Christ. Wow. E, what was the response to the good news? Number one, in the story, verse 16 and 17, and the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, when, whenever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews and a feast and a holiday. They're saying, oh, wow, we are saved. We, here we were glum, and we were in sackcloth and ashes. We, we knew we were going to die, and then suddenly, wow, God, uh, the, the king has sent the second edict, and we're, we're going to be okay. And there's a gladness and a joy. Hey, neighbor, did you hear? Wow, edict two is coming our way. We're going to be okay. We're going to be saved. And there's this, the, the spirit of joy and excitement in their lives, feasting and congratulating one another. How about for us, number two on our outline? Our good news is not just for physical salvation, a saving from a physical edict. We have an eternal and spiritual edict lifting as well. Not edict lifting, edict providing, edict number two providing. We have so much more to celebrate. Are we so full of joy that it spills out of us. Are we just celebrating, saying, oh my goodness, Lord, I, I deserve the penalty of death for what I've done. Wow, and yet you, Lord Jesus, the Prince of Heaven, 
perfect God came and died for me. Wow, are we so full of joy that it spills out of us? Galatians 5.22 tells us that one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. If ever there were people that should be exuberant with joy, it's Christians, even when things aren't looking so good. Wow. Are we drab, lifeless? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I go to church, yeah. Oh, or are we, you know, are, are we hilarious with joy, thrilled that God provided Edith too, so we can go to heaven eternally? Wow. Much of the dramatic response from the Jews of Persia was that excitement, that joy, that celebration, and we should have the same. Wow and to be a testimony to other people. Listen to this. This is so incredibly interesting. Look at the second part of 17b. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Do you hear that? When the people around them whether it was Ethiopia or India or some of those other provinces that it talked about or, you know, uh, uh, Susa itself or whatever, they, was they, when they saw what had happened to the Jewish people, they were like, uh, yeah, I'm Jewish. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I, if you trace back, you know, in my, my father's heritage, you're going to see. And they saw the incredible miracle of Edict too, And they said, hey, I want some of this. I want to be a part of this people group. Wow. They were, and they were fearful not to be a part of the Jewish community. How incredible if the people around us said, oh my goodness, tell me about how to become a Christian because I want, I want part of Edict too with you. Wow, that is our responsibility to be so joyful, to be so um, grateful for what God has done that the people around us say, I want it too. I want it too. Wow. In summary, Billy Sunday said this, if you have no joy in your religion, there is a leak in your Christianity. Isn't that good? Yeah. If we're walking around saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, go to church on Sunday, he's saying, if there's, a, if there's no joy, there's a leak, something going on where the joy of the Lord is dripping out. We need to analyze our lives and say, okay, what is wrong? Why am I like this? I need to remember the most important thing in my life is Edict 1 has been erased because Edict 2 came. Jesus died for my sins. Wow. Our response to God in our, in our lives should be produce joy and confidence that spills out on the world around us in a world of pain, difficult circumstances, pandemics, unresolved elections, troubles in the streets, all the things that are the realities of what are, are happening to us today. We need to have joy that spills out on the lives of the fearful, what's going to happen, people around us. Wow. We have the privilege of knowing about the Second Edict. For previous lessons or other resources, please visit sharedinhouse.org 
or call us at 954-583-1552. We hope you can join us again next week.